Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. But I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 8 of The Boys in Short Pants, the ninth episode. This week, Etienne is away in Alberta, so I've interviewed two of this year's parliamentary interns. The Parliamentary Internship Program, or PIP, is a 10-month paid internship program. Ten successful applicants work for half the program in an opposition MP's office, and the other half in a government MP's office, in no particular order. So without further ado, uh, Claire Seifert and Ryan Vandenberg on their experience as parliamentary interns. Ryan and Claire, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having us. So Ryan and Claire are two of this year's uh, parliamentary interns uh, as part of the, the parliamentary internship program. Uh, they are going to tell you a little bit about themselves, and then we're going to ask them some questions about uh, what they do as parliamentary interns, kind of what life is like on the Hill, and whether it's what they expected or uh, if it's turned out differently at all. Uh, Claire, go ahead. Well, I'm Claire. You kind of, kind of blew the cover on that one. Um, I am Claire, and I am a parliamentary intern. I'm originally from Victoria, so I'm a bit far from home. Uh, but I find there's a lot of commonalities between Victoria and Ottawa. Lots of bureaucrats, lots of trees. And now I'm here after just finishing my degree in international development, environment and economics at Simon Fraser University School for International Studies. So this has been an interesting chance for me to reorient from taking classes all around the world <laughs> to actually learning more about my country here. Um, and yeah, so I did my first placement because we work with two different MPs. I did my first placement with uh, uh, MP Guy Caron from the NDP, and now I'm working in the office of Andy, Pil- Andy Fillmore, who's uh, MP on the government side. Right, thanks. Ryan? Uh, well, my name is Ryan Vandenberg. I grew up here in Ottawa, so I'm not too far from home. Uh, I did escape for a few years. I went to Mount Allison University, and that's where I did my undergrad in Canadian studies. And I've just finished my master's in educational studies over at UBC, so now I'm back home, living the dream. We'll get to talk about that a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, Ryan and I are actually our old friends from uh, from Mount A, so that's, that's kind of how we got the in here. Um, so what, guys, what kind of drew you to the Parliamentary inter- Internship Program? The chance to work with Ryan. <laughs> I didn't even know it yet, but it was my calling. Um, we have a nice little gel. It's pretty great. Um, the, the internship has so many interesting components. So it's not just working at Parliament Hill, which in and of itself is an astounding opportunity. But we also have so many different opportunities to gain a more comprehensive perspective on Canada's governance system. So we also have the chance to go on legislative study tours, and we've been through that to Quebec City, uh, to Brussels, to London, and to Belfast, and in seven days countdown, we will be heading to Washington, D.C., and then in May, we're going to Iqaluit. And this is a chance for us to really really shed more light on not only on these diverse systems but on Canada's own system like gaining that more comparative perspective and for me that was I mean what, what an opportunity yeah I think I can speak for a lot of the other interns because we've had this conversation a few times and what keeps coming up is for a lot of us that we have for the most part, been in academia for most mm-hmm. of our young lives, and there are, of course, some exceptions to that, but a lot of people have seen a whole lot of things in literature that they sort of wanted to test out in real life, see what actually happens, what doesn't, and I think I fall into that category of person, so uh, I kind of wanted to see, in terms of what I've studied, how much of that is actually happening day to day on the Hill, 
how much of this is just rhetoric, how much of this is new ideas floating around. And so it's really kind of that academic component that really drew me to the program. Because uh, one of the things that we also do in addition to the study tours is to uh, do some research of our own. Uh, we conduct original research projects using parliamentary resources and actually get to disseminate those in various ways with the public. So pretty excited about that. And so I think that's what drew me to the program most. Cool. Do you guys, can you guys tell me a little bit about kind of your day-to-day routine as uh, as parliamentary interns? Because I know it's, it's a little different than sort of your, like normal or non-parliamentary intern Hill staff. You guys have some extra duties as well. So you guys kind of walk me through a day. And I guess uh, one of you can just sort of start. And then if there's anything that sounds wrong or different, you guys can interject as needed. Well, I know one fundamental difference. I start with a strong breakfast. And Ryan, <laughs> Ryan just has this boring oatmeal every, every day. day. <laughs> every day. You and whereas I change well. it up. Um, but yes, I do start with lots of brain food, and then walk to work. Whereas yes. I am very much a busser, and yeah. this is a very big difference in our Fundamental lives. Fundamental divides. Yeah. We then actually get into what you're probably more interested in, which is the <laughs> what, parliamentary What's your through security? Um, I remember my pass. I yep. get through the desk. I get to the office, and and then and then the job decides. Like every day is different. Okay. And every office is different. And having the chance to work in two offices, we're two offices because we're a nonpartisan initiative, uh, administered by the CBSA but supported by the House of Commons. Uh, there's this strong emphasis on us being able to work both on the government and on the opposition side. And I mean, just working within those offices, each office has its own dynamic, its own portfolios, its interests, uh, its own constituencies. So it's, it's hard to generalize. I'd say the average day uh, can probably be summed up by sending a lot of emails. A lot of emails. <laughs> a ton of emails using my email signature, in fact. <laughs> I didn't even get one of those. You've so got to make jealous. your own. Is that responding to like constituent letters? Is that kind of thing? There's a lot of emails for just every reason under the sun. It's a lot of emailing people who are in your office at that very moment mm. from across the room. There's a lot of emailing. Yeah, some of us uh, answer a lot of constituent email in terms of uh, what we think is uh, the right response that the MP might want to send back. Uh, some of us just pass that right along to the MP depending on the office. And so, again, it's one of those huge differences in terms of what we actually do in a day-to-day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then depending on some of us work more on on projects, some of us have, have more of a focus on committee work, uh, and that comes with a whole host of emails in and of itself. So. Yeah, I think a lot of us have had experiences as well working on special long-term projects, and so a lot of us were pretty heavily involved with things, uh, for instance, like the electoral reform file that came up. Uh, a lot of us were involved, uh, like in my office right now, um, I'm working with Blake Richards uh, at the moment. He's MP for Banff Airdrie on the conservative side, so he's a critic for tourism. And so I'm working on a long-term project that'll have to do with uh, small businesses in there. So again, it really, really depends on the office, like Claire's saying. It's kind of just like a hurricane of different things every day coming at you. You just got to work with the winds and see where they take it, and it's a good time. Yeah. Uh, do you, so you guys especially, as, as you mentioned, it's a nonpartisan initiative, and you spend uh, one term or sort of one half of the, the internship working with a government MP and the other half with an opposition MP in no particular order. Uh, how does your guys' tasks differ from the, the explicitly partisan staff mm-hmm. in those offices? And do, is there sort of like a, a barrier there that you guys kind of have to overcome uh, in terms of sensi- like partisan sensitivity and trust and that kind of thing? Barrier or opportunity? Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of negotiation in either case. Mm-hmm. I think, it again, it's something that really differs from office to office, from intern to intern, and it kind of depends a little bit about what we're comfortable with. Uh, at the end of the day, it's probably never acceptable that we go door knocking and talk to uh, the constituents of a riding about 
trying to sell a yeah. particular government uh, or party's perspective on something. But at the same time, it is a matter of, hey, we're going to do background research and try and support what you're doing in yeah. that office at that time. Yeah. And I suppose even for constituency mail, there is a certain, there's a fine line between the informational dimension and the constituency service dimension and the political dimension to communications that I imagine is sort of sensitive and a fine line to tread. Mm-hmm. You have to find that balance. And I think that being... I do think it is an I think it's an opportunity to be able to see to to go into an office a, in an in an openly nonpartisan role and to be able to see that because as you as you stand on the margins and watch or not stand on the margins but participate participate and help the office but you also have the chance to watch and to see that partisanship unfold. Right. And for me that's been that's been a huge uh, it's been an education um, because often I think when you are embedded in that office, it's hard to see what is partisan and, is, and isn't. Right. It's very hard to extricate the sort mm-hmm. of like service function of an MP from their, their function as a exactly. you know, political person. So. And we go in there having to be very conscientious. I'm always thinking about like, how can I, like, being nonpartisan is very, it's very active. Yeah. It's constant, yeah, constant uh thought on my mind so there ain't no rest for the nonpartisan. <laughs> one of the fun things too is that we get to actually go visit the riding in 99% of cases and mm. so we get to see what happens in a constituency office mm-hmm. uh, that's something that's entirely new to me and it's mm-hmm. a lot less partisan in a lot of senses right. but it, it involves a lot more uh, like you're saying sensitive casework and so it's a lot of people who are wondering oh can I have my passport expedited uh, what yeah. can I do about uh, this particular financial barrier that I see Yeah. so uh, you can Go and take a look at that and help out with uh, some of that work. But that's the sort of side that I don't don't think people see sometimes as an MP. Either they see the political side or they see the service-oriented side. And yeah. I think it's hard to kind of bridge that for a lot of people. And so that's mm-hmm. what's been a little bit new for me. Yeah. And for us, because we're not working during an election year, uh, I think we're ha- we have a different experience than all the different PIP cohorts before us who, for example, may have been there when, when an election was called. Yeah. And that's when partisanship becomes quite a bit more tangible yeah <laughs> certainly ebbs and flows to mm-hmm. the political sense, like partisanship elections are like a tsunami yeah they're uh yeah personally i actually really don't like elections so i think they make everyone dumber and more partisan uh in, not in a good way so it's uh i'm not a huge fan but um you guys also you get placed into two different mps offices how does that happen like i know that ryan's mentioned to me before that there is an interview process where you guys you are not interviewed by the MPs but you interview them. That's uh, can right. You guys tell me about that. Uh, that was also a whirlwind of an experience. So if you want to talk about tsunamis, we can talk about uh, conducting almost ninety interviews over a two week period with uh, various MPs across, of course, every party. Uh, that was really really busy. That was a lot of fun too. I think it was kind of helped us hit the ground running because we got to see what it looked like inside an MP office. Uh, We got to see their staff right off the bat. We got to meet them and just talk to them about what their priorities are, what projects they have coming up, and sort of how well, essentially why they wanted an intern to work on you know, particular projects or what have you. So mm-hmm. that was a really, really good way to start off the program because it really got us in from day one. Mm-hmm. And speaking with representatives from every, every official party was, it was amazing just to see the, the spectrum of the spectrum of interest that the MPs had. And right. I think it put a lot on my radar that I hadn't even thought about as being as being an an issue. Do you know what I mean? Like when you operate in your daily worldview 
getting up, having breakfast, walking to work, walking back. There, is, there are things that you don't think about that yeah. are somebody else's. Like, yeah, that's they're, they're a... driving force. And so for me, that's been a huge awakening. Also, the interviews were learning experience in uh, parliamentary navigation. <laughs> <laughs> we we did learn. Center that we block can, is confusing. It is. It, we we didn't. We're not. <laughs> we did not stop at center block. We can fit all ten interns. Into every elevator on Parliament. <laughs> Everyone, about we're really without exception. Good at that now. Yeah, we can sometimes even fit in there with other people in there, which is a surprise for them. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very happy day for them when we walk in and say, "Oh look, there's ten of us. We're just gonna keep going with it." Yeah. <laughs> How do you guys feel that like the the PIP cohort differs demographically from other Hill staff? There is there a difference? Because uh, having perused the, uh, the the parliamentary internship program website, you are you are all. Uh, early to mid-20s white folks with university degrees. Is that pretty consistent across uh, the Hill offices that you guys have seen? It's interesting because I don't think we actually have any uh, real hard data on either the makeup of our program or the makeup of the Hill staff. The Hill is is a glaring blind spot in uh, research on political science in Canada. That's actually something at our Carleton program they... uh, they would love to know more about, so uh, mm-hmm. trying to get some data from you guys. <laughs> well, and that's exactly what our role is. I mean, one of the uh, the things we've noticed with a lot of the past intern PIP papers that, uh, again, I was talking about our research papers before, a lot of them have that focus on what the demographics are like in Hill offices, what the demographics of you know um, the partisan staff are, the, the legislative or the administrative staff, right. so things like that. And so I think that's kind of where we fit in. We're really glad that actually Shirk is able to support us in that because it lets everybody else see the research that's coming out and it actually can be valuable for people like you who are students looking for that kind of interesting tidbits about you know what we can do better what we can keep working on and uh, what we're actually already really doing well with yeah mm-hmm. what's the biggest thing that surprised you guys about working on the hill there are a lot of surprises Daily <laughs> <laughs> surprises i can talk about how constantly grateful i am that the cafeteria food is amazing and on a less flippant note, I guess, even though this is a huge part of my day, I am so into the food culture there. Uh, <laughs> it's a really, really open place. And I think that's what struck me because I worked as a parliamentary guide before a few years back. Um, and it's just a very open place in terms of who is allowed to use public space. There are limitations, and that's actually something that I'm looking at in the research paper that I'm pursuing. Um, but taking a look at the amount of people who come through Parliament's doors and can treat it as a place where they get to learn about the legislature itself, where they get Mm -hmm. to learn about politics, and the amount of interaction that an MP will have with his or her constituents on a day-to-day basis is also a sign of the openness that a lot of them have. So again, it is going to differ from office to office, but as a whole, I think Canada actually does a pretty good job of keeping uh, this place so open to the people it's supposed to represent. Mm -hmm. I think... One of my first surprises, because I am so consistently surprised by this place. I'll just go back to one of the first, uh, back in September, when I had no idea the role that clerks play in Parliament. Clerks is all I can say. Astonishing. They are these absolute gurus of procedure. And I didn't understand how procedure is, is... a tool on the hill right and the clerks are so wise in the ways of procedure and they're they're they are a resource uh, and i i have learned much <laughs> from their from their work so and i think that that work goes often unknown by the canadian public at large right um, the yeah the clerks the library of parliament all of the 
the, the, the people who work in the cafeteria, all of those people who are critical to the functioning of parliament, yet you don't often see you don't often see them at work. There's a whole apparatus yeah. that makes it possible for the MP to do their job. And MPs do a phenomenal work. They are like it is a job that never sleeps. Right. But there's also a whole team behind them who isn't sleeping either. Yeah. So that's to me that's been astonishing the uh yeah, I guess the community that makes legislation happen. That's a really good point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you guys mentioned that you have a, lot, a big travel component to the internship as well. What's something that you guys have found really interesting or learned? Uh, any insights that you, you've learned from visiting other legislatures? And, you know, whether it's political culture, procedure, uh, you know, makeup of parliament, that kind of thing. Just anything that's really struck you in the, the visits you guys have done. One of the things actually that I was noticing, it's sort of a smaller note, but it actually made a huge difference at the end of the day, was just the sheer size of the legislature. I think we kind of take for granted that, yeah, you know, we have one representative for every give or take 100,000 Canadians in Canada. But when you get into a giant parliament like uh, the UK's parliament, uh, which has hundreds and hundreds more people than we do, it completely changes the dynamic of uh, what a backbench MP will do because mm-hmm. it changes the dynamic with party lines, it changes the dynamic of how much they believe they can actually get their projects done in the legislature through regular channels. And we're actually talking about at a certain point how they have um, a a second sort of legislative chamber that they need to defer to when the first one gets too busy. And so it's it's really just something that I think we take for granted but makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, I'll go... It's so hard to pick one thing because there are so (laughs) many... Sometimes also the similarities are more surprising than the differences between our parliaments. But one thing that I think I've always I've been very impressed with throughout our travels is just the um, the differences between um, the differences between the civil the civil service and the interactions there. So I had no idea that the EU does this process of secondment, where like national governments will second personnel to the EU. So being able to to see, to look at this supranational organization, which in many ways has similarities with Canada's federal system, but at the same time has these these unique twists because the EU has to, to even more so than in Canada, balance the sovereignty of its constituent members. Um, and I thought that secondment was an interesting way for the for to to build bridges between between those um, between the EU and the national governments because by embedding civil servants there in the EU they gain a new they they get to see the EU project for themselves right. and then return to their country and our, so our, I thought that was quite an interesting uh, innovate like I don't know innovation of yeah. civil service are they working in political offices as as uh, like seconded civil servants or are they working sort of in the support structure of uh like, are they working directly for parliamentarians? Um, my understanding, we only met, I should say, uh, civil servants who were seconded more to the actual uh, institutions of the EU. Okay, So they're I working see. for the European uh, External Action Service, for sure. the European Commission. Um, and, yeah, so that was... Okay, that, so slightly different. Th- yeah. Those were the those were mainly the people I met. Um, so it's hard to compare exactly their roles with the with the role that we have here in Ottawa. 
can say that's an accurate reflection, yeah. Yeah. So Ryan, also, especially to you, I've, I've forgotten who the second MP you're working for right now is, Claire. I'm working with Andy Fillmore. Andy Fillmore. Okay, so both of you guys have worked for an MP that is represents a rural constituency and an urban constituency. Mm-hmm. Do you guys feel that there is a difference in their jobs on day-to-day or in the jobs of their staff on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I can. I should probably clarify that the first MP who I worked for was a liberal MP named Arif Irani, who works in Parkdale High Park, and it's in uh, Toronto. Uh, he is also the parliamentary secretary at the time for citizenship, immigration, and then for uh, heritage. Now that's a more recent change, um, and I think that's one of the things that does affect our day-to-day lives in the office is sort of the priorities of people in the constituency, of course. And I think that's the biggest change in terms of urban-rural divide. Um, there's a lot of studies out there that suggest that people's ideological views, people's opinions about the government itself are going to be shaped in large part by the, essentially the density of the, uh, the area that they live in. Um, and so I think that's probably the biggest difference that I've seen. But aside from that, there's a lot of similarities in terms of you know, the office structure and um, the office priorities that I don't think are really affected too, too much by the urban-rural divide, to be quite honest. Okay, interesting. I think actually on my... Remember I said I was regularly surprised. On In my top 10 surprises would be this distinction between rural and urban uh, issues. And especially because as someone who's, I've always lived in an urban center, or as urban as you want to call Victoria. <laughs> urban uh, enough. Yeah. There's like a good concentration of people there, although there are more capital. deer every year. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so for me, I think that a lot of the issues that come up in a rural riding are ones that were not even on my radar as someone who had never had to face them in my everyday life and for i'm just gonna i'm thinking of an example when i went to see uh Guy's riding the the riding of rimus kinejet to miskuata le basque so one of those really good super hyphenated <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah extended uh extended edition um and there were whole parts of his riding where as you drive across and it's, it's, a, it's a massive riding. But as you drive across it, there's no cell service. And that was just something that I think never crossed my mind as an issue to be, that needed to be advocated for, um, was connectivity in rural ridings. Uh, and we've seen this debate emerge more, I think, more prominently in the imagination of the Canadian public, especially uh, around broadband. Uh, but at the same time, for me, this has been a huge, it's been a huge, I think, awakening to those, those everyday things that I, I too often took for granted. That's a really good point. Um, there's also about, about the program itself. I know we touched on this earlier, uh, the sort of diversity problem that it seems to have in the sense that it's, uh, it's all, it's all white folks. Uh, and this year, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, but even then, I think it's, seems to have struggled in the past to have a sort of. Uh, representative or representational diversity and do you think there's a particular reason that that happens I mean my, my pet theory is that there's a bit of a the kind of person you're looking for who is nonpartisan but nevertheless very interested in the legislative process and in politics tends to skew whiter educated and you know sort of c- centrist in the political spectrum broadly speaking um, but do you think that that holds true? Is there any validity to that? Or would you propose sort of an alternate theory? I think that I'm really grateful that this is a conversation that we're able to have, and it looks like mm-hmm. it's a conversation that we're having at pretty much every level here. 
Um, and it's also an interesting time because, as always, I guess the House of Commons is becoming more diverse. And so we're sort of drawing from their perspectives about how you can actually invite more people in to have these conversations and to be, you know, even just a, a visible face for a certain community who uh, can represent their views well. So in terms of uh, the, the qualification criteria that you were mentioning before, um, we do have a requirement that all of our interns have a university degree, and so that right. is going to be something that for a lot of people may not be quite as accessible, but because of the academic components of sure. our uh, program, I think are something that uh, is sort of a necessary qualification yeah. to have in this sort of work. Uh, though of course, we do see a lot of Hill staff who, uh, who've never actually gone to university and things like that, and a lot of MPs themselves who haven't gone to university and gotten a degree. So um, it's probably a conversation that should be had and it has to be recognized. Um, no, yeah. I, I absolutely agree, and it's, it's definitely an ongoing dialogue, because I think um, your theory is, I think it's true that it, it could. Yeah. It could. Because um, nonpartisan people who are nevertheless very interested in politics is like, it's mm-hmm. tricky, because, uh, I mean, I'm, that's not to say it precludes having strong opinions to be nonpartisan, obviously, because I've, I've you know, <laughs> been friends with Ryan for many years, and he has strong opinions on lots of things. Do I ever. Uh, but it, it does seem to ask a certain different set of values and sort of ideas than I think your, your normal Hill staffer, or your average Hill staffer anyway, or even your, your average partisan volunteer, um, which strikes me as, as interesting just because it requires such a different mindset than most political people mm-hmm. who are in you know partisan political offices have. I think you're right, and I think it can be a... I think it's a cycle. It's a it's a cycle of privilege. But I think that one positive shift I see is that we're broadening the understanding of what civic engagement looks like away from this narrow this narrow very narrow focus mm-hmm. on on say voting as civic engagement or on working in a party. And I think like we we had the chance to I say we because all of the parliamentary interns were one juror on Samara's everyday political oh. citizen. So we acted as one. And um, and this everyday a political citizen um, project is basically they, they crowdsource nominations from across Canada. And then they select three uh, everyday political citizens, people making, making an impact in their community. And they're political citizens, but the, if you look at the array of citizens with, that, were, that were nominated... It, it moves away from this idea that voting and campaigning is the only form mm-hmm. of politics and looks at volunteering at even starting conversations as as a truly political act. And I think if we if we can broaden that definition and make it more inclusive uh, and actively look at the value of, of bringing in diverse viewpoints, not only for the program, but also for all the people that we have the the everyone that we have the opportunity to work with, then I think that our, our program can also go through that positive transformation. That's a really, really good point, actually, that uh, broadening civic engagement beyond partisan politics is uh, something that we should look mm-hmm. at. Otherwise, I think it just becomes very, well, it's uh, a, very, very restrictive, very yeah, narrow. And channeled through a handful of institutions that are, you know, themselves mm-hmm. quite controlled, closely controlled and co-opted by, you know, different interests. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that. 
Well, at the same time, I think we see a lot of uh, the people in our offices trying to find alternative ways to reach out to populations who haven't typically had their voices heard quite as loud. And so we're seeing, of course, you know, resurgence in things like town halls. A lot of them are talking about things like citizens' assemblies, other various ways of actually getting uh, the population directly involved. Maybe not in uh, binding decision-making, but at the same time, giving them an opportunity to hear or to, to voice what their uh, opinions on a particular subject are and maybe to actually even uh, to propose solutions of their own to these problems. Mm -hmm. So I think we're moving in the right direction. I think we would all probably in this room agree that we're not doing it as well as we could be quite yet, but that it's nice to see that we are taking the first steps on the way there. Yeah. So as, as people who have now worked in Parliament, uh, what advice would you give to citizens who want to see some sort of change happen and want to like get in touch with their MP and make something happen? What's the best way for them to do that? I think you have to go through a lot of different channels, to be honest. Uh, your MP is probably going to be able to champion an issue uh, only insofar as their role permits them. So I think what a lot of us have seen is that uh, a backbench MP does have quite a lot of power in certain arenas, but certainly not all. Um, it depends if your MP is in government or opposition, and that's going to make a huge difference in terms of whether they're able to just criticize what's going on or actually propose uh, real substantial alternatives that uh, government might actually be able to move forward with. So if they could take a look at uh, you know, even forms of things like direct action, if they wanted to move into arenas where you know, they actually could make their voices heard and things like the Citizens' Assembly, uh, talk to the media. I think I've actually undervalued the role that media plays in mm -hmm. politics until very recently. And so uh, really getting their voice heard in a number of different ways rather than focusing on one alone, sure. even though formal politics in Parliament is itself one of the most important among those yeah. to this day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and just to add on to that... Uh, I don't want to say here, here, um, <laughs> but I think it's important to stop and ask what kind of change are you looking for? And this, this internship has definitely made me more aware of the kinds of change that are possible within our system, and especially from the point of view of a backbench MP. Um, so for example, if you, you're, you're a backbench MP, you want to pass you want to pass a private member's uh, bill, you you can't pass one that increases increases spending without a royal recommendation. Right. Yeah. So but the right clerks, away, uh, gave you yeah, all that the, the clerks sure gave me a rundown <laughs> yeah, on yeah, that. They, they're and they're probably somewhere shaking their heads because I'm sure I got a detail wrong. So please fact check me, audience. Yeah. But automatically, if you are campaigning your your uh, your member of parliament to pass a, well, to put forward a PMB mm -hmm. that, that would require funds. I mean, already you're, yeah. it, already from the get-go. almost never happen. No. Yeah. Um, I think there's, what, a 2% of them pass or so? It might be as high as 4 now, but yeah. it hasn't <laughs> what, changed a And that's degree. of all private members' bills, I think. Not even that's ones right. that require rural exactly. for, for funding. So, so yeah. like, think about how can you... How can you work within the system? Or, like, what kind of change would be viable if you're... Or, or work outside the system, yeah. but, but I think if you go in strategically, that can help. Yeah, because I guess you'd have to lobby not just your, your member of parliament, or that helps, but to really, you'd need a budget item if you mm -hmm. wanted something, you know, tangible with, you know, brick and mortar, yeah. or any kind. And I say done. that, and it, it's frustrating to have to think that, ah, oh, some types of change are closed. <laughs> it's very frustrating. But sometimes I suppose that's, that's pragmatic. Yeah. You did mention the word lobby. I think that's actually something that surprised mm. most of us as well in this internship is that 
we probably undervalue or have a sort of societal mistrust around lobby groups and advocacy groups as sort of these backroom people who try and fly uh, members of parliament would to well we had we had a uh, rob silver on a couple weeks ago who is a you know, former uh, guy who worked at a public affairs firm liberal talking head etc right uh good guy but uh he we, we joked with him that uh and a lobbyist is an advocate you don't like <laughs> and an advocate is a lobbyist you do like, uh, which I think there is something to that, in that it is the same Blurry activity. Line. It's yeah. the same activity. It's just that you know, guy who works for the oil company versus guy who works for you know like the don't kill the polar bears NGO is like you know one you're gonna think well it depends on who you are I don't know Maybe there are some people who really hate polar bears, uh, but on average people are gonna be you know less inclined to trust one than the other. But one thing I didn't really realize also about lobbying is what it. What, how the how two-way the communication is. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about the lobbyists um, spreading their message to the government. It's also about the lobbyists going in and getting a read on what direction the government is going so that their their industry, their sector, their <laughs> there are lobbyists of all, all shapes and colors uh, so that they can understand where the government is going and that mm-hmm. they can prepare for that. I think that's important too. As They're almost translators of the government's position yeah like stakeholder meetings i'm guessing is something that you guys are probably involved in doing the, the background work and prep for for your mps right is that uh yeah mm-hmm. a fair bit i think uh, between the offices that's one of the pretty standard things that i think we've yeah. all done and i think that's a role that uh people don't often appreciate that mps have uh the sort of stakeholder meetings would you guys mind saying a bit more about that and kind of describing that process and what people hope to achieve on both sides Sure. I think from an MP's perspective, a lot of the time they're just really curious about an issue because we always have to remember that MPs were, yes, elected voices, but they're not necessarily citizen experts in everything under the sun. So I can say in the first office I was in, we heard from a number of different groups, um, you know, some were concerned about um, the slaughter of horses for meat. Uh, Others were concerned about bigger issues such as global warming. And so between hearing all of those different voices, there's no way that one person would be able to be an expert on all of these topics. And so it's great to see from an MP's point of view that people are often open-minded about saying, look, I don't know anything about this and I want you to tell me your position so that I can be better informed. Um, it might not actually influence the policy that I think we're going to design in terms of doing exactly what you wanted to do, but it will influence it in terms of getting a sense of what you're interested in and why. So that's a big part from the MP's perspective. I don't know if you're able to speak more mm-hmm. on that or from the other side. I think that that captures it, but I think there's also an interesting kind of offshoot uh, category, which is the MP meeting with uh, meeting with constituents who maybe don't come with maybe they don't come with necessarily an issue. But they come to meet the MP, and then the MP, I think, can play an important role as almost a, as a translator of parliament, sure. and to engage people in that in that system because they also, it's they play an important role in making parliament accessible mm-hmm. and communicating that with their with their their people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because there that used to be an old uh, bugbear of the Reform Party uh, that used people would uh, come into office oh, yeah. and get auto washed. Uh, and they would they would stop representing okay. uh, their constituents to Ottawa, and they would start representing Ottawa to their constituents. Uh, do you think that there is a sort of institutional capture that people get caught up in the sort of uh, drama and the, the you know the, the pomp and circumstance and regalia of Parliament? And do they lose touch with their communities, or do you think they're quite good about uh, being a good voice? From well, from across my my experience which i can't say is vast <laughs> i still feel every day like i am new 
Um, the MPs are so connected to their community and their community is constantly on their mind. And, and I mean, I'm sure Maine people are saying, but also maybe some people didn't. I didn't realize how often MPs are back in their community and mm-hmm. how top of mind the, the community is. And I mean, those are, those are the places that they've, they've worked, that their families often live in. Um, they, they are often very grounded in those communities and there are constant, there's constant channels of communication. There's constitu- there's email from the constituency, but there are many other, they have um, the communications between, and it depends on the office, but between the office in Ottawa and the office or offices in the constituency are constant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would like to say that I've actually never heard the term Ottawa until now. No, so yeah, that's, that's that came into my old life. reform party thing. So. <laughs> uh, lingo. Thank Preston Manor, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think similar to Claire, I didn't quite realize how much um, an MP actually spent time in their riding because for me, being from Ottawa, right. my MP actually lives in the same city and so it's not a huge deal to go home on a weekend or just every single day after work. Right. Uh, but yeah, it's, I think a big issue for a lot of them to keep those communication channels open and keep it a two-way conversation, which I think for a lot of them is tempting, you know, to, to take the Ottawa perspective and have to feed it back to their community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that might be one of the biggest differences actually just between a government and an opposition MP. Because for a government, they might have to be able to go back and say, look, this is what our government is doing for you. Whereas for an uh, opposition MP, it's a lot of look, this is what uh, the opposition is actually working against, and so yeah. we want to make sure that your voices are heard. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily just the experience in my office, because, of course, there's um, people listening to their MPs and to their constituents on both sides of the House. But uh, from the the sense I get from all 10 of us interns, I think it's actually something that is pretty different based on the party that they belong to, whether they're not, or whether or not they're in power. Yeah, so that's the it's more between a government opposition divide than it is a, a strictly partisan one. If there is one, yeah, it's not a, it's yeah. not a strong divide in any sense because again, those two communication channels both ways are open, but yeah. I think that it would be a little bit more pronounced on one side than the other. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, is there anything else you guys would, would like to add that you you think you've really appreciated about the program that other people who might perhaps might be listening and be interested in applying to the program, like a sort of distilled nugget of wisdom? <laughs> Because I know the deadline's passed for this year, but hopefully we can just throw this out again next year before it passes and uh, people can... Uh... Yeah, I think there's a whole lot of nuggets of wisdom. <laughs> I know, I'm not particularly good at distilling. Yeah, well, nugget, nugget, nugget away then in that case. <laughs> hmm. well, I think your question about diversity is a really interesting one. And I think that also we have an ongoing debate in the program about how we can contribute to truth and reconciliation. And I see that as a theme that's going that is around the hill and how do we actually make a meaningful contribution to that um, that's not symbolic. So I think just to add on to your conversation there or to our conversation about the actual composition of not just the program, but the hill, I think that this program is, is it's an opportunity to, to come to Ottawa and to be in a position where you can, and can ask those questions mm-hmm. um, and also have, have things that maybe before I didn't see places to ask questions, it, it can encourage you to ask new questions. And that's a, I mean, that's having questions sparked, that's, that's an education. So I would definitely encourage all to apply and like really don't, there's, there's no shoe, there's no shoe box of, that you have to fit into. 
there's no like one type of experience that you have to have that would prepare you for this program. I think that um, diverse, diverse, diverse forms of experience and stories and histories uh, can really enrich this program and through this program enrich the work on the Hill. So I really encourage people across the board to apply. Yeah, I would definitely echo that sentiment. Uh, I remember I was considering, oh, I'm not even sure I'm the right fit for this program. I've never done a political science degree. I've only ever taken a single political science class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think uh, that might stop a lot of people from doing it. Uh, you know, Same thing with like the language requirements, but we have to remember that um, the language requirements are flexible and that while a working knowledge is really important, mm-hmm. um, it's possible to actually kind of up your language skills before you get here. And so, and even while you're in the program, I've actually really honed my French skills as a second <laughs> language uh, since getting back to the Hill after spending uh, a couple of years out of Ottawa. So definitely don't let yourself, uh, hold yourself back. Uh, definitely apply based on if you have an interest in public governance, if you have an interest in federalism, if you have an interest really in just getting to know some really, really cool people. I think uh, it's just been such a grand old time getting to know, <laughs> you know nine other like-minded people who we'll probably be friends with for the rest of our lives, so I'll get a little sappy <laughs> sure here. Sure hope so. <laughs> but uh, it's definitely a program that's worth the time and the experience, so apply, apply, apply. Well, thanks so much, guys. I really appreciate it. Uh, and thanks Thank for, for representing the program here on the on our, our humble podcast. It's much appreciated. And, <laughs> thank uh, you for having us. And thanks for, for bringing your insights here. Yeah, thank you so much. Once again, a big thank you to Ryan and Claire for their time and uh, for representing the Parliamentary Internship Program. Uh, for the rest of the episode, uh, we're going to play another one of our staffer stories from the Staffer Story Vault, once again from Professor Jennifer Robson, uh, from the biggest screw-up she ever had on her time on the Hill. Okay, so let me tell you about the times that I met uh, Jean Chrétien. As okay, Prime this Minister is going to be good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this is also another one. You'll see a, a common theme is like Jennifer Robson on the Hill, just, you know, makes mistakes. So um, I, this, I was actually even younger at the time. I think I was maybe uh, 20 some odd years old. I was working in the Prime Minister's office. This was winter of 1996. Um, and I was invited to um, the Christmas party in the Prime Minister's residence, so 24 Sussex, right? And so, you know, arrive in a cab with other PMO staffers, and of course, you know, it's a beautiful building all decorated for the holidays. And, you know, there's uh, one of the uh, one of the personal staff to the Prime Minister is at the door, kind of, you know, very officiously greets us and wants to verify who, who am I? Am I allowed to be there? Because I barely look old enough to, like, be of legal drinking age, I the, the last guy he got left let into Cretin's <laughs> house attacked him in the middle of the night, so he's double-checking the ideas I think they, they figured they, that I didn't look like somebody who was likely to, you know, require being chased away with a carved statue of any kind, but... Um, so I come in, and of course I'm already feeling a bit like a fish out of water. I'm by far the youngest person in the room, and we're in like we're in 24 Sussex. Right? How old this were you is, at this point? I was like 20 years old, I think, at the time. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, 21. I would have been 21. Um, and so we're we're in 24 Sussex, and people are having just kind of a cocktail reception and chatting, and and the Prime Minister is circulating around with Madame Chrétien as well, and. Um, my boss says, I'm, come with me, I'm going to introduce you to the Prime Minister. For a lot of staffers in PMO jobs, you can work in PMO for a very long time and never, never come face-to-face with the Prime Minister, right? Hmm. And certainly it wouldn't be part of your daily or even weekly routine, right? And that was certainly my position working in policy and research. 
so uh, she calls me over and she says, I'm going to introduce you to the prime minister. So now, now here I am in 24 Sussex with a whole bunch of like important people around me. I'm feeling totally like a fish out of water. And now the prime minister is in front of me. And Chrétien is, he's a tall man, right? So he's kind of like looming over top of me. I'm already feeling a little out of place and uncomfortable and uneasy. And so my boss says something very, you know, like gracious and lovely and, you know, just perfectly on tone, right, to introduce me to the prime minister and, and very kind and generous and whatnot. And then she leaves. Now she's left me alone to talk to the prime minister. <laughs> and I'm like, my mouth is going dry. I'm not too sure quite what I'm supposed to say. So he sort of like looms over me and says, hmm, so you work with the uh, so-and-so, yeah? And I said, yes, yes. I can't do a very good Christian imitation, oh, we'll by have the to way. Get, uh, Dr. Wilson next door. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, I confirmed that, and I'm obviously like kind of just very quiet because I figure I'll just take my lead from the boss, right? And then he says, and he's, of course, meaning to be charming, and he says, so you do all the work, and she takes all the credit, right? <laughs> and I sort of go like, oh, what am I supposed to say to that? You know, and of course, what's the correct answer? The correct answer is you say, no, 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 of course, she is wonderful to work with and, and she's such an amazing leader and I feel so privileged and it's just a terrific opportunity to serve, sir. That's not what came out of my mouth. <laughs> okay? Here's what came out of my mouth, out of nerves, is I sort of said, ha, 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 well, no, 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 she's she's fantastic, but, you know, that's, that's not quite true. In any case, like, you know, then that would mean that, like, she does all the work and you take all the credit, Mr. Prime Minister. <laughs> That's what came out of my mouth in 24 Sussex at the holiday party. And so the Prime Minister just sort of, like, looked at me, surprised, and then turned and walked away. And that was the time I met the Prime Minister of Canada. Wow, that's a... Uh... Speaking truth to power. <laughs> that's such a young age. There you go. And this is why I am now here on campus in the ivory tower. <laughs> <laughs>